Welcome to Pharmacide Today, our regular podcast about what's happening in pharmaceutical science, hosted by Professor Gina Martini, Chief Scientist of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. Visit www.orpharmes.com forward slash podcast for more Pharmacide Today and other podcasts. You can help us support the work of pharmacists by joining. Membership is just 60p a day. And now over to you, Gino. My name is Gino Martini, and I'm the Chief Scientist for the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. I'm delighted to say I'm joined by David Hipkus, the CEO of Anisi Pharma. David, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you, Gino, and lovely to talk to you. David, what we're trying to do today is we're trying to get into the nitty gritty of science and this wonderful area of drug delivery and, of course, with vaccines. But before we do that, can you just tell our members who you are? Yeah, sure, Gino. My chemical engineering by degree, uh, a long time ago, I might add. And the initial part of my career was actually in the gas industry with their products and chemicals. After that, I made my first foray into biopharma in 95, joining the then Kyra Science in Cambridge. And after that, I, I moved on to a company called Accentus, where I became familiar with the sonocrystallization technology. I took that technology out. I formed a company called ProSonics. We raised about $25 million for that and then sold that several years later to Circassia, based here in Oxford, where I am now. A couple of years as CBO at Circassia, I then founded Anisi Pharma and have then been developing that company over the last four years as a leader in disruptive vaccination technology. I remember ProSonics, very interesting company. So can you inform our members about what your company actually does? Yeah, sure. Anisi is unique in the world of vaccines and vaccination. We have a format for vaccination, uh, which solves a lot of the innate challenges historically associated with classical vaccination by needle and syringe. Our technology involves around the combination of a unique precision engineered unit solid dose of vaccine smaller than a grain of rice with a particular physchem properties, strength, structural strength, etc. And then that is combined with a low cost reusable actuator, which applies spring energy and mechanical action to impart the implant into the subject uh, in a reliable way each and every time. The platform is broadly applicable, as I'm sure we'll discuss a little bit later. So if I've understood you correctly, David, you're not actually injecting a liquid, you're actually going to be inoculating or injecting a very small particle of solid materials. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. We, we use the term implant, albeit in the classical sense, implant is something that doesn't dissolve. It tends to hang around in the body like a stent or a hip joint. Here we're using the word implant with regards to the verb rather than the noun, so the process of implantation. Our unit solid doses are a little under a millimetre across in diameter. They're about four millimetres long and have a, a mass of around about four milligrams. And within those implants, we can put the vaccine, the vaccines or adjuvant or adjuvants as required. They're made by uh, scale out processing. So there's a good opportunity to service any particular demand we choose. And to date, we've undertaken probably more than about 20 preclinical trials, I think, so far on a wide range of vaccine constructs. We have 10 or so reading out this year. And in developments, we'll be looking forward to undertaking our first clinical study in 2022. I've been vaccinating since January, probably done over a thousand people by now. So I've really yeah. got to understand, yeah, the difficulty, obviously, of cold chain supply, you know, with the various vaccines that are out there and, and the difficulty in manipulating uh, liquids as well. So that really fascinates me uh, because I'm a drug delivery scientist by nature. And the bit that really intrigued me is that you're not just going to be able to inoculate just one 
potential vaccine. You could do maybe two or three, maybe in single grain. That's right. I think we've been pleasantly surprised at how broad the platform has been so far. I mean, there are numerous examples we've taken, ranging from pandemic influenza with BADA. We're a Gates Awardee company who've been evaluating live vaccines such as measles, rubella. We have a fantastic collaboration with the U.S. Army at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research in Shigella, which is, it was an unmet medical need, and actually some large collaborations with uh, Big Pharma too in, in the area of things like HPV. Uniquely about the platform, it is a true combination technology. And in many means, the device is simply the means to administer the implant reliably and repeatedly. Or B, we can do that on, on a very cost-effective basis. But the key is, as always, as I'm sure most people listening will understand, it's the formulation, it's that ability to take the vaccine into a format which is reliable and robust each and every time. One of the key challenges is, is thermal stability. But that's not just the challenge. And working in vaccines is very, very different to working with chemical entities, for example. But some listeners will, will understand that the use of sugars and lyophilization and spray drying is actually a really good way to impart a degree of thermal stability onto a biological substrate. Indeed, that's what's used most of the time today in any form of injectable when you're looking and working in the, in the dry format. But what we've done here is we've taken either those spray dried constructs or those lyophilized constructs. And then we've mixed them with some other excipients, which give us both structural strength and uh, maybe some additional thermal stability. And we've used one of three processes to put them into the implant format. The first, which is the most advanced, is a cold extrusion process. It's a little bit like spaghetti mating, to be honest, Gino. And we take the construct and we extrude the low temperature through a die. Uh, we capture that onto a winding system. That very long length of extrudate is, is then dried and then cut to shape in a precision fashion. Those implants are then put into the cassettes, which ultimately end up going into the actuator. It works very well. The second process we use is uh, one of microtableting. Now, this is really at the boundaries of engineering science here. I'm sure we can imagine the form factor of a millimeter long and four millimeters wide. Part of the challenge is to not only get the powder into the die set, but to eject successfully the implant in its own right. And we've been able to do that, actually borrowing a lot of our learnings from Presonics, which we, we talked about at the top of the call. So we understand how that works. And then the third one is a, a little bit more on the, on the drawing board, but that's a polymer molding process. More about that, I think, as, as this year goes on. But to your point on the question with regards to mismatched vaccines or, or what together, because we work in the solid state, we can do things in the solid state that you can't do in a liquid or suspension slate. So we can take lyophilizate one or lyophilizate two or spray dried construct one, spray dried construct two, and then blend those together immediately a priori to the formation of the implant process. In that regard, we can put different substrates together. We can work with multivalent materials. We can manage mismatch chemistries, be that acid or base. And of course, we don't have diluent for reconstitution, so we don't have to worry about that either. And as a consequence of that, we can come up with some very creative solutions. On top of that, one of the most important things of our format is that's the guaranteed delivery of the unit dose of a vaccine which we've seen actually in some of the COVID crisis recently with the lack and loss of doses from multi-dose vials just because of their packaging format. That's one thing we don't suffer from. So every dose we make is a useful dose. Because there's always 
a little bit left in the vial, even though you've got a slight overfills. Yeah, that, that's very, very interesting. It sounds really fascinating technology. And many of the pharmacists listening to this would be really interested because we do still teach formulation to all our pharmacy students. So it's still a core discipline. So what's been your perspective on, on, on the COVID-19 vaccine development and its rollout? First up, a huge well done for everybody who's been involved in it. It's unprecedented the degree of science and engineering and, and volume and deployment that's been done in such a short period of time. And if ever there is a case study for what can be achieved uh, under extreme duress, this is it. I think what's been very encouraging is the uh, use of new biology. So you've got the synthetic vaccines and the the mRNA ones you know, of the Pfizer-BioNTech, the Moderna and probably CureVac coming up as, as well. And Imperial College in London have their self-amplifying RNA projects too. The viral vector work, which is you know common across Johnson & Johnson and Oxford University, again, a fantastic opportunity and developed very well under partnership with Astra. And then more recently, we've had the almost, if you will, the reserve vaccines, although I'm sure they're going to work very well of the likes of uh, Novavax with their novel adjuvant formulation uh, and Valneva coming along as well. So I think when faced with such a challenge, the ability for industry to work together and importantly, regulators to work together and pragmatically with rolling reviews, I think they've done an amazing job. But of course, they've just had to focus on bulk they have to focus on volume and getting as many people uh, administered as possible. So to a large degree, drug delivery considerations or vaccine delivery considerations were secondary. And of course, I'd support that in this particular case. We did touch on the, the mRNA ones or the multi-dose vial ones, and we said there's just a little bit left in the vial. Well, as interestingly, there's probably 20 to 30% left or unused. And we, we've heard that you know Pfizer were, were pushing the ultra-low dead volume syringes because in actual fact, there are six doses in a five-dose vial. And whilst that doesn't sound very much on a unit vial basis, you make 100 million doses and you're only treating 80 million people, that starts to become a big problem. If we look at how they did, they've got the bulk focus to start with. Uh, that's great. They had to go with what they knew. So ultra cold chain delivery has been a problem. Uh, it's getting better. But that really is just a, a, an endemic issue with vaccine deployment and delivery worldwide per se. Now, I think we're coming to a different stage of the pandemic. And certainly in the UK, we're in a very good place. I think right now there is the opportunity and perhaps this pandemic has put the spotlight on some of the challenges of logistics for delivery of vaccines. And I think right now is a good time to be looking forward to next generation delivery systems, one of which, as example, of course, is our Implavax technology. So David, can you inform our members about the science behind your platform? Yeah, and I think we'll just focus on how we think the, the solid dose works for benefit. The solid dose in its own right is about one two hundred and fiftieth of the volume typically delivered by a needle and syringe. So we're in a very, very concentrated situation here. The excipients in their own right also have some adjuvant-like properties. Some of the sugars are well known to do that. But I think if we can just begin to imagine the monolith, if you will, as a little slug of particulate-based vaccine, and we know that particulate-based vaccines are highly immunogenic. So we have a dry construct, which is deposited into the skin. And it's deposited around about three millimeters below the surface of the skin. Transcutaneous is the term we like to use. So it's certainly not intradermal, but it's certainly not intramuscular either. But we're spanning that region of the skin, which is very beneficial for biology, Langerhorn cells, antigen presenting cells, etc. 
The first thing to recall is the implant in its own right is dry. And when it arrives in an aqueous region of the skin or plasma-rich area of the skin, the first thing that's going to happen is through reverse osmality, it's going to draw in fluid towards it and it's going to swell. Now contained within those fluid is the beneficial biology that is helpful for presenting the antigen contained within the implant to the cells that arrive at it. That swelling also helps with a little bit of reactogenicity. Not too much, not too less, a bit Goldilocks, but that really helps the situation too. Because the material's in solid form and we can also control the rate of release of the vaccine, be that bolus, delayed, sustained, or even pulsatile as we look towards the future, what essentially that means is that the antigens are presented to the body for a longer controlled period of time. In many ways, it's a little bit like a natural infection, I, I suspect. But what we see by this, because of this almost micro depot effect, is that we tend to get at least as good responses to our vaccines in the solid format, if not better responses to that of an equivalent delivered in the liquid needle and syringe. We have multiple examples of antibodies, neutralizing antibodies and T-cell responses, which have been comparable or better than the liquid needle and syringe equivalents, and often with the opportunity to completely remove the need for things like aluminium adjuvant. So in that regard, there's a, a combination of things that appear to be making the, the products work very well, and I think gives us a very strong foundation for next generation vaccines, be they life cycle management opportunities, like some which we have at the moment, we're taking existing products which are on the market and putting them into needle-free format, or indeed best available technology for the likes of next generation COVID vaccinations, such as we are beginning to explore with our partners right now. If we bring that back to COVID, it is fair to say we now have direct experience of formulating each and every type of COVID vaccine that has been approved so far. And we're very excited about combining the Implavax format with those cutting edge biological step forwards, which have enabled the mass delivery of vaccines at a hitherto unprecedented scale. So the technology could be used, for example, to maybe deliver two different COVID-19 vaccines. Yeah, it could be, theoretically. I can imagine mixing a, a proteinaceous species with a viral vector, for example. Mm -hmm. um, I think mix and matching the, the RNA ones may be a little more challenging and actually probably wouldn't need to be done, to be fair. And with any technology, there's always a limitation uh, to some things. And the one thing we have, of course, we have a fixed payload. So uh, we have a, a four milligram uh, implant of which sort of a maximum of one and a half to two milligrams of active material is sort of the upper ceiling for which we can successfully formulate such that the implant retains its structural strength to allow successful implantation. But given most of the vaccines around are dosed in the tens of micrograms, if not hundreds of microgram spaces, we generally feel we're okay in that regard. So in theory, perhaps a COVID-19 vaccine that was given in two boluses, i.e. in two doses, you could maybe just do it in one. I mean, it's speculative, but is that feasible? Is that probable? Is I think it is perfectly feasible. And we've evidence proof of concept of that already, at least on the uh, in vitro testing and cell-based assays we've done with substrates genomes. So right now today, the real challenge for vaccinations where you have more than one dose required to achieve immunity isn't so much the administration process per se, it's getting somebody to come back for the second dose on time and in full. 
So adherence to regimen is really key. That's a particular problem with three-dose vaccines, even more with four. But taking three to two or four to two would be a massive step forward, or indeed two to one, which is what might be the case for the majority of the COVID vaccines now. So what can we do? So right now, if you wanted to, theoretically, we could give an administration into the arm on the left with a bolus delivery, and that would be your first shot. And at the very same visit, a delayed release shot of the second dose, and that would not start to come up until three weeks, four weeks afterwards because of the particle engineering solution contained within it. So that's Mm -hmm. possible today. I think it is within the realms of possibility and certainly thought because we've evidenced there's again already with some, I would say, protein markers, I would say, is the best way to describe it. But we can conceive to put in a pulsatile system such that in the same implant, you could put the bolus and the delayed release substrate because, as I said at the top of the interview, we can mix and match things uh, because of the way we particle engineer prior to implant formation. We may put a delayed release coating on it. There might be a hydrophobic nature on it. There could be some plug on it. But I think it is credible to conceive of a single shot administration for a vaccine all in one in one visit. Always want to make me put on the white coat again, go back in the lab. Really, really fascinating. And I think you mentioned before about different kinds of vaccines. Have you looked at this technology for other biological agents? Uh, well, we can't do everything. We're, we, <laughs> whilst we've grown sort of 30, 40% in terms of our staff uh, over the last uh, 18 months, uh, and again, I wanted to say thank you to all my team. They've been absolutely outstanding uh, over the last 12 months. There are always limitations. We are a high potent material delivery company, be that chemical entities or particularly vaccines of type. I don't know about monoclonals at the moment, Gino, I think that might be a step too far for us. A lot of the monoclonals are are often given by infusion bags, if you will. You know, you put them on and you sit in a drip for a while because of the dilution that needs to go on there. So I'm not so certain we may go right the way into that. But other fragments of genetic material of whatever source they may be, I don't see any reason why not. There may also be the opportunity to maybe take some of those viscous liquids which are given by injection and put them into the solid format and maybe solve some of those challenges too. But I'm sure you would agree that the world of vaccines is pretty big and and finally back in vogue. Yeah, well, I think they're here to stay, aren't they? If you listen to the experts just in COVID-19 alone, they believe we're endemic for at least another four or five years. So it's not going to go away very quickly. David, I think all I have to say is I want to thank you for your time. It's been a really, really interesting discussion, uh, very exciting times. We want to thank you for your work in this area because clearly your platform, the work that Inezi is doing, feels can help in the future with future vaccination programs and maybe, who knows, with boosters. So on behalf of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Gino. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Likewise. Thanks for joining us at Farmside today. We regularly add new chats with interesting and important figures at www.orfarms.com forward slash podcast. So check back again soon to keep up with the latest in pharmacy and pharmaceutical science. And remember, RPS membership costs just 60p a day. Find out more at www.orfarms.com forward slash RPS membership.